Hello, I'm Trent Brown. You're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. On today's show, we speak to Sahil Shekhar about employment in India's formal and informal sectors, inefficiencies in India's education and labour markets, and the promising technological and institutional innovations that may be ahead. So Sahil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so could you begin by telling people a little bit about your background and how you became involved in uh, these questions around skills development in the informal sector? I think I, I first got interested in um, education in India when I had the chance to work with the municipal government of Mumbai. Um, there was a kind of a citywide program to improve the quality of Mumbai's primary schools. Uh, and while I was working with them, I kind of realised that the issue that parents and children spoke most about um, in the context of their education was the importance of getting a job. Uh, and so I guess after that experience, I worked with the, um, uh, the, the the kind of new Ministry of Skill Development and Entrepreneurship that the Government of India has um, has established um, with a focus particularly on vocational training and trying to skill as many Indians as possible and place them in uh, well-paying, um, productive jobs. And so I, I worked with the Ministry for a few months and uh, opened up a whole host of questions um, for me about uh, how we're thinking about uh, skilling India, how, about, how we're thinking about putting skilled Indians in good and well-paying jobs. And it became a topic of research for me uh, in my own studies and in my own um, master's degree at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, and I've kind of continued since then um, being interested in this topic and working in this area. Right. So obviously very important issues. I mean, we hear a lot of figures about India's informal sector that upwards of 75% of Indian workers are employed informally. But could you perhaps explain for our listeners what exactly we mean when we talk about the informal sector and why you think it's a problem that so many Indian people are employed there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that that figure is a good starting point because what we're really talking about is if you look at India's, in India's labour force, about half of it are farmers. Um, then even if you look at kind of urban Indian workers, um, about 70% um, work in the informal sector. And, and when we say informal sector, that's a kind of an abstract term, but it has very real human costs and consequences. What we're talking about is um, the dhobi or the, 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 the laundry um, worker who works alone by himself and washes the clothes for the dwellers of, a, um, of an apartment building. And what we're talking about is the person you know, selling vegetables on his lorry on the street um, the formal definition is, you know, businesses with less than five people who have little or no contact with the government. There's a glamorous way of looking at it and say, you know, these are all small companies, entrepreneurs in the making, um, startup kings, but that's just simply not true. What we're talking about is people who haven't been able to get jobs and because they haven't been able to get jobs, they're doing whatever they can to make ends meet. Uh, and what we know is that people who work in the informal sector have wages that are um, 20 times lower than their counterparts in the formal sector who do have jobs. Uh, what we know is that these people don't have contracts, they don't work for a stable wage, they're not building a work history that allows them to take loans from banks or get better jobs as their career progresses. Um, and, and so really they're excluded from the extraordinary economic growth that India has experienced over the last uh, three decades really. Um, people have been left out and doing whatever they can to make ends meet, and that's 70% of all urban Indian workers. So it's a, it's a, it's a really big problem. There's also a big cost for the economy as a whole, um, which is that we know that informal sector enterprises, you know, these one-person shops that you see on the street, are you know, much, much less productive 
than bigger formal sector companies. In fact, these bigger formal sector companies are nine times more productive than the informal sector counterparts. And that's really not surprising. If you go back to the example of the, you know, the laundry um, man who works in an apartment building who's working alone and compare him to a commercial laundromat, which is enabled by all the capital and training that a company puts into it, which is enabled by kind of the coordination across many workers, you're not surprised that you know, the commercial laundromat is at least nine times more productive. And so having most of your economy be informal and unorganized and these one-person informal shops or inf- informal workers really means your economy is nowhere near as productive as it could be. So not only is it like a big individual cost for people who are excluded from the economy, it's a slowdown on our aggregate economic productivity. Right. So a huge challenge for India. So what are some of the main approaches that the government's taken so far to get more people into formal sector employment? Yeah, so, so the government has done quite a few things. And, you know, really, when you look at them in aggregate, it's at least half, if not more, of the government's agenda is aimed at this problem. Um, but, you know, if I play, place it into two broad categories of approaches or agendas, um, the first is to say that, hey, the reason that people aren't, more people aren't in formal sector jobs is that there aren't enough jobs. We have too many people. We don't have enough jobs to put these people in. Um, and, and what that's really given rise to is, um, let's call it the Make in India agenda, which is an agenda that says, hey, we need to attract more investment. Some of that needs to be foreign investment to create companies and create jobs in India. We need to invest in infrastructure. We need to make better roads and ports that, again, allow companies to grow and hire more people. And we need to simplify our regulatory regime and environment. We need to make it easier for companies to do business here. And a prime example of that, I think, is um, is labor regulations in India, um, which in many cases are quite archaic. Um, you know, there are regulations where if your company employs more than X number of workers, depending on the state, 100 or 300, you have to ask the government's permission before you fire them. Now, you know, there are ways around that for companies, but um, it's these kinds of regulations that hold business back. And so the government's made a commitment to try and simplify that, but um, it's kind of a long and arduous process and efforts are slow and often frustrating. Labor laws is a good example. Um, in 2015, when the government proposed simplification of, um, uh, not a simplification, I guess, a, a modest amendment to the labor proposals to make it easier for businesses to operate, um, there were widespread strikes across the country. Um, news outlets reported that a million people were on strike in India. Um, so the Make in India agenda is, is an important one, but it's um, slow and frustrating. Um, I guess. And and then there's a second approach, which is to say, hey, you know, the problem isn't just that there aren't enough jobs for people. The problem is we have these jobs, but the peoples don't have the skills to be in the jobs. Um, And and really what fuels that line of thinking is that India's growth has been quite skill intensive. Um, That's to say that it's been led by sectors like IT um, or service industries, which are generally higher skill than, you know, low skill manufacturing, for example. Um, and that means that the kinds of jobs that have been created aren't just jobs that you can take the laundry worker or, you know, the unskilled um, factory worker and, and, and just plug him in, right? They require a high level of skill. And so that's given rise to the Skill India agenda, which is to say, hey, we need to make basic education universal. We need to improve the quality of tertiary education. We need to kickstart a vocational education agenda in India. Um, and again, there's, you know, great merit in that agenda, but it's a long and complex process. And what India has seen is great successes in reach and enrolment and getting children in schools, for example, but a big crisis in quality. Um, you know, there's a uh, education sector is kind of infamous almost for um, the number of low quality 
institutions at all levels um, that have proliferated and exist. So I guess these are the two traditional approaches um, which have the right intention but have had challenges in their implementation. Right. So it sounds like we've got a number of well-intentioned programs here, but a number of sort of roadblocks at the level of implementation. So what are you suggesting as an alternative? So I guess what, what I'm proposing is there's a third neglected agenda. Make in India and skill India are important, but we're missing the bit in between, which is that oftentimes we have a willing and deserving candidate on the one hand um, and a job vacancy on the other but our labour markets aren't efficient and aren't meritocratic and they fail to match the talent to the opportunity. Um, and, and, and there's a few causes for why we're failing to match talent to opportunity. It's because employers can't recognise good and bad candidates. Um, it's because candidates don't know what skills they need uh, to get the jobs that they want and they don't know where to go to get those skills. Let's just look at one aspect of this problem, which is the boom in colleges in India over the last decade. So over the last decade, 20,000 new colleges have opened up in India. And to put that into perspective, I think in all of the US, there's about, I think, six or 7,000 colleges. In, in all of China, if you're thinking population, if, in all of China, there's about eight or 9,000 colleges. In India, in the last decade alone, 20,000 new colleges have opened. Two-thirds of these are private, and most of them are focused on job-focused um, uh, vocations like engineering or pharmacy. So amidst this kind of proliferation of new institutions, employers are really struggling to learn which are the good colleges and which are the bad colleges. Similarly, students are really struggling to learn, hey, which are the good colleges and which are the bad colleges. What this means is the best students who graduate from school don't necessarily know where to apply in order to get the best job. And on the other side, when an employer looks at a CV, if you take out kind of the elite tier of universities right at the top, most of the time he doesn't even know the university on the CV in front of him even existed, let alone whether it's good or bad. And this sounds like a trivial problem. It sounds like, hey, it's not a big deal. Colleges have opened, people will learn. But it's actually a really big deal. For the employer, it means they can't fill the vacancy they have uh, with the right candidate. And that costs them in terms of bad hires. It costs them in terms of vacancies that stay open for too long. It also means they resort to things like hiring through their networks. They hire their, you know, manager's nephew or um, their own cousin's brother-in-law. And what we know from the academic evidence is that this kind of hiring is not at all meritocratic. Um, people, when they hire in this way, are likely to hire people who look like them or appear like them. So there have been studies, once a study showed that, you know, candidates who are otherwise identical, a candidate with a Muslim name is one third as likely to get an interview as a candidate with a Hindu name, or a candidate with a low caste Hindu name is two thirds as likely to get an interview as a candidate with a high caste Hindu name. So, you know, resorting to network-based hiring, we've also created an unmeritocratic labor market where deserving candidates can no longer get the job because they have no way to signal that they're right for the job because these degrees are now turning into meaningless um, pieces of paper in some cases. Um, and for the education sector as a whole, what we're seeing is bad colleges able to hide in this crowd of 20,000 new colleges that have just opened up and continue to operate and continue to profit um, off of the aspirations of kind of the, the vulnerable students who are signing up there. Um, and no one can call them out for it because the information about who's good and who's bad is it's just not there. And kind of like zooming out even more to the economy as a whole, what you see is that, you know, in an environment where employers don't trust that your degree means that you're a skilled candidate, 
employers aren't willing to pay for your skills because they just don't trust that you have them. They think you've got to teach, they're going to have to teach you from scratch. If they're not willing to pay for your skills, you're not willing to invest and get those skills. So really at the heart of the quality problems in Skill India, at the heart of the low levels of quality of education and also quantity of education in India is what seems like a trivial problem but is not, is the failure to be able to tell, hey, is this college good or bad? Hey, is this candidate in front of me the right candidate for the job or not? Um, and from the candidate side of, you know, point of view, it's the failure to be able to say, hey, what skills do I need to get the job that I want to get? Right. Okay. So essentially you're saying that there needs to be more information in the labor and education markets. Yeah, So exactly. what kind of systems can be put in place to achieve that? So I think there are glimpses of hope. I don't think there's, there's one answer that's going to, um, going to crack what's a, what's a tough problem. Um, I think on the, on the, Public sector response, um, there have been promising developments in terms of, you know, through the Ministry of Skill Development and Entrepreneurship, the government of India is trying to set up an ecosystem which brings in a lot more private partnership in deciding what are the skills that educational institutions should be training on. And they're doing this through, you know, it should be a familiar concept in Australia, this national skills qualification framework where employers really write out what are the skills that are required for job roles in their industry, trainers train against those skills um, independent assessment agencies and um, verify that job seekers have attained those skills and then those job seekers go and get jobs in those industries with those employers who kind of wrote down what those skills were in the first place. In theory, a very good system in practice has been difficult to implement um, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason being that the buy-in of industry into this solution is kind of, you know, lukewarm in some cases, more enthusiastic in others. But the other being that there's the quality of assessment has been um, has also been kind of variable, with many people questioning whether the assessments are good, are valid, are really worth paying more for the, the certificates that are being handed out. So, you know, kind of falling back into the same traps that we've seen in the college system. So. Right intention, but problems in implementation. Um, we're also seeing more and more a private sector response to this problem, which is companies coming out and saying, hey, look, we know you can't trust the government certificates, but we'll certify um, who, you know, who might be good for this job or not. Um, so um, we'll work with employers very closely to understand what their needs are and then provide them with a service that matches the right employee to the employer. Um, and finally, we're also seeing an increasing move towards the crowdsourcing of information about a person's quality. Um, so, you know, I think the most famous example is Uber. Anyone who's used Uber and has rated their driver out of five stars before, you know, after the end of their trip um, knows that we rely more and more on direct consumer feedback and perhaps even direct peer feedback uh, about a person's performance in the workplace. And you see that happening in India as well with more and more freelancers on platforms where you have these kinds of um, crowdsourced reviews. So I think, you know, there isn't, unfortunately, I can't offer, you know, a a comprehensive solution, but I can say that there are glimpses of hope, both in the government's opening opening up to private participation and setting the skills agenda through the NSQF and um, the sector skill councils they set up, but also promising the private sector attempts to um, bring more information into the labour market, whether it's through assessments or recruiting services or through crowdsourcing information. Right. So certainly some interesting developments to keep an eye on. Uh, now, Sahil, you've worked as an advisor on the Government of India's uh, Skill India initiative. 
Could you tell us a little bit about that initiative and whether you think it offers any circuit breakers to sort of allow India to expand on formal sector employment? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I I spent a couple of months with the Ministry of Skill Development and Entrepreneurship, and I think you know, the, fr- from my point of view, I think the, the ministry has quite a few initiatives. But the one that's to me the most promising is what I was just outlining before: is the um, effort through the National Skill Qualification Framework th- um, and the Sector Skill Councils, which are essentially industry bodies that say, "Hey, these are the skills that we need." Um, you know, the effort to bring them into the tent and to say, "Hey." Um, let, let's let's understand what your needs are. Let's try and train against them, um, a, and give you people that you actually need. Um, so I think you know that could be a circuit breaker, as, as you put it, if um, if properly implemented. I think there's just uh, a lot of challenges in implementation, not the least of which um, is that low quality training providers aren't very happy about any initiative to shine a light on this sector. You know, if you, if you think about it, if you're a bad college or if you're a bad training provider. It's not in your interest um, to have good assessment or it's not in your interest to be kind of caught out. And so any government initiative in this system will have to contend with that kind of the politics of that. If they're able to work closely with industry, if they're able to kind of create a space for um, reliable and trustworthy certification, you could go a long way in increasing your bang for buck in all other parts of the education sector, you know, the, the money that you're spending on colleges, the money that you're spending on um, setting up vocational training um, institutes, um, it would be much better spent if you could be assured that the quality of education will be good. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating stuff, Sahil. It's going to be really interesting to see whether Skill India and indeed the Made in India project are going to be able to live up to their ambitious targets. So really, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. We hope you can join us for the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening to the Afternoon Adda. Bye for now.